PodRocket is sponsored by LogRocket, a front-end monitoring and product analytics solution. Don't know what that is? Go to LogRocket.com. Thanks. Welcome to the rocket surgery episode of Pod Rocket. This is a special rocket surgery because not only is it me and Kaylin, but Chris Coyer is here with us. Hey, Chris, we are very excited to have you on. We have lots to get to. Uh, the first thing that we should get to, though, is kind of the future of CSS, which is a broad topic. Uh, and so I'm not going to talk to you about it. Kaylin is going to talk about specific things within the future of CSS, like right now. I thought today we were talking about the future of CSS. Um, it's something that we often talk about, uh, these kind of big picture topics uh, here at LogRocket. CSS, I feel like, doesn't get as much attention because people are focused on, oh, the shiny new JavaScript features. But uh, there's actually a fair amount of new things coming down the pipe in CSS lands. You might have heard, heard it under the umbrella of CSS Houdini, which is basically a, a package of features. But my big question is, like, say that I'm a developer, uh, I don't know like a ton of CSS. How do I know what I need to, to learn? Should I even care about the new features? Is there anything new coming along that you know improves my life, or are we just adding more complexity? And then we have uh, another question that we've had on this podcast is like the role of a CSS developer and how that fits. So I guess yeah, I'm just cool. interested to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, okay, where do you want to start? I mean, you mentioned Houdini and the future of CSS. I guess, I guess those are, they're similar, but I don't know that like everything that happens in CSS comes through like the Houdini pipeline, you know? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, you probably know more about it than I do if you like watch what the spec people are doing so much. I usually kind of a, a little more detached from it than that. I just am like, oh, people are excited about this. Maybe I should look into it, you know? Usually by the time I'm, uh, I don't know, maybe this gives away too much that I'm how unplugged in I am, but usually by the time I'm interested in something, there's already at least an MDM article that's scaffolded out that has some information on it, you know, because they're usually pretty on top of things. Yeah, CSS Houdini, for those who aren't aware, is like basically a set of APIs giving low-level access, uh, like the paint worklet, uh, which mm. allows you to like use a script as like an image, basically. And a, a lot of these features, like they look pretty, but people don't know how it'll actually fit into their workflow. Like there's uh, awesome CSS Houdini and you yeah. can see all the really cool things. Yeah. I mean, th you mentioned the paint worklet. I think that's, I think it manifests in CSS as like paint as a function parentheses and parentheses, but you have to like have scaffolded that in JavaScript for it to work. And then you can use it anywhere that you would need to, paint an image but now because behind the scenes you had javascript that you could use the canvas api to paint it it looks pretty cool to me i mean i've seen demos that you know can do some pretty neat stuff have a border that there's no other way you could pull off in css you know so you can see how that like opens a door you know or like there's confetti in the background it's like there's no css property for confetti you know that's you'd be you'd have to especially like programmatic confetti you know uh you could paint a canvas on the front end but not as like a css background image so it's kind of cool but it is canvas you know it's like not it's like stuff that you kind of could do some other way but has syntactic syntactically moved to css 
it's compelling to me, but I have literally never reached for it for a production thing, you know? Uh, I guess my, my thought is like, um, we have like a large body of people who struggle to learn all of CSS and then we're adding on really complex things that uh, people don't need to know or learn in their day-to-day jobs. Like, is that a good idea? <laughs> is yeah. it just going to end up being like another web component kind of thing where... Yeah, it's unknown. I mean, you, you could take that to extreme levels. You could say, do you need to know any of this, anything at all of this new CSS stuff to do your job? Nope, you don't. If you, Especially if your job is already okay, like you make sites for a clients or something and you do pretty good and they pay you and you're happy and they're happy. Who cares? You don't need any of this, none of it. But, you know, I had a I had a fella just email me the other day. He was he said he oh, in his opening paragraph, he said he's 75 years old. Not that that should matter, but he's trying to stay up to date with 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 stuff and and whatever and feels like, wow, there's a lot of new stuff. And he was even specifically asking about like grid and Flexbox and stuff. And that last time he did web stuff, those didn't exist. And he's worried and wanted to know what's up. Do, do you even have to bother with that stuff? Let alone, should I learn Gatsby or whatever? You know, like that's, that's so those are like on very different scales of what you need to learn. But they can feel the same to a person who doesn't know either. You know, they're like, I don't know, they're just words and I don't know what they mean. So maybe I should learn them. And, uh, you know. I kind of was like, no, you know, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a checklist of crap to learn. Like, I don't know enough about your situation. You can't just blanketly say, yes, here is your checklist. Learn all of these things. It just doesn't, I don't know. What do you do that you would need to care? But I did say like, okay, so you're aware of grid, right? It comes along and you don't know it. Let's say you want to line up three boxes next to each other. Here's two lines of CSS that can do that now with no caveats. No hacks, no bullshit. Sorry if this is a PG show. It just works. So cool, right? So I was able to teach him that. Good enough, you know? Like that. maybe that's a, a useful thing to know when, when something that used to be hard got easier. That's cool. In the case of a paint worklet, nothing got easier. <laughs> you know, like only things got harder there. And I'm not sure that like the, the selling point is as easy, but we also like that. That's where we left Houdini. Houdini has other stuff in it that just is kind of interesting. One of them that like gets no fanfare at all is the, is like a, is it CSS being typed that you could like ask for a value, you know, JavaScript people are like, okay, I, I pull, I want to know the font size of something. So I'm going to get a reference to it in the DOM and that L dot style dot font size, it's going to return like 16 or something. And you're like, 16 what? You know, right? And it, you just got to know that it's pixels. And then when you, but when then you set it back to the DOM, you can't just set 16. Then you have to string append PX to the end of it for it to work. And it's just a little janky and there's probably historical reasons for all this stuff. Wouldn't it be nice if CSS was more typed and it like knew what kind of units things were? Well, for, I don't know why, but that stuff is all jacked into Houdini. That's one of the like modules of Houdini and it has different support across different browsers, but that's another thing. And then there's ones that are way more obvious how useful they should be, like instructing the browser how to do layout one of the things that Houdini promised was not promised, but people talked about was, couldn't you write a Houdini layout thing that this has nothing to do with types has nothing to do with the paint worklet. 
but tell it how to do masonry. And I think there's been some demos out there that have proved that it can. So like now that's that's much more compelling because that's something that people have wanted to do forever. It's uh, People often call it the Pinterest style layout because it's this, it looks like a brick wall kind of and how things stack up together. And there's no super great other way, even in CSS Grid, to pull that off in a in a in a good way. Now, as I say that, Grid does have a way to do it. They've decided to smash masonry layout into Grid instead. Yeah, it's, and it's I it's cool. I think it's cleverly done, and I'm not sure what the browser support is is entirely, but it's going to be like a instead of declaring your rows you say masonry so things don't have to line up on rows or something it's just i i it's, i don't have it loaded into my brain at the moment but it's a little controversial because it's because, because the css grid wasn't too complicated yeah it's already it's it's i'd say it's up there in terms of complication but it's kind of opt-in com- complexity I'd say the very basics of it are actually pretty darn easy uh but it gets it can get gnarly for sure uh, but it looks cool. It looks smart to me. I kind of gave it the thumbs up. But, the, you know, like absolutely everything in web dev, it has its elements of controversialness to the point where some people that are very bullish and happy on grid were like, not the place for this. But sometimes the ship just sails without you. And Yes. Sometimes that. it feels like the standards bodies get a little bit too far ahead of the yeah. community. Perhaps, you know, like CSS has variables They're in the form of CSS custom properties. Now, there was plenty of people that just said, that's a bad idea. That's it adds programming like stuff to CSS that in a way that changes the nature of what CSS is. Well, guess what? Too bad. It's gone. There's no taking it back now. It's in CSS. So the nature of CSS has changed. You can't A-B test history. Move on, you know. Another new thing uh, that was added recently, container queries. Uh, mm. I guess you can kind of like split all the new features into two different camps, like things that will be interesting to maybe use like in a library that like wrapped it and made it easier to use and then things that you might actually use in your own app. And I guess container queries might be in the, that camp along with grid. That's a cool way to think about it, I think, in that even, th- you know, we say the word grid and I hopefully people listening to this podcast know we mean like the spec grid like display colon grid and CSS but it in the early days of talking about grid it could be a little difficult to talk about it because what people meant by grid was just the abstract concept of a grid itself just mean I want to make some columns and rows and use them in CSS and the way that I do that isn't CSS grid because it doesn't exist yet it's with floats or inline block or something. There was some other way to do it. And so back in the day. Right. And and so you'd very, very often reach for a framework to do it. In fact, it might be the number one people reason some people reached for a framework at all. Bootstrap probably had some degree of popularity just because it had a grid system in it. And people like grid systems. And grid systems were complicated enough that it was nice to not have to think about it. It was nice to be like, somebody else deal with this column math for me because columns suck, you know, or the gutters between columns. Things could get complicated. So you'd reach for a framework to do it. And then Grid comes along, and notably, there are no frameworks for Grid. I don't know if you've seen a lot out there, but there's no, if there is one, it's probably a joke because you don't need one. You just don't. You just declare how many columns you want and what you want the gutters to be, and that's it. That is the framework. Is that going to be the same way for con- con- these container queries? I don't know. 
probably. Yeah. Um, whenever I use Grid, I usually use Styled System uh, in React. Styled System? Tell me about it. Uh, it's like CSS and JS, but uh, like utility level. It uses styled components, but uh, actually I think it uses Emotion, I don't remember. Uh, but it's just like wrapping the Flexbox and the Grid API in like a really nice mm-hmm. React component. So I think that's like the furthest I would get with a CSS Grid framework. And you use it because you like the syntax, right? You like to put have a, a prop that says columns four and you get four columns. Right. But the abstraction level there is, that's fine because you like it. You're in JSX anyway, for example, you're writing in React. I like the syntax of JSX too. I think it's nice. I like the prettier fixes it all up for me. It's just like a pleasant developer experience. But the abstraction in this case from those props to what it's doing in CSS is super light. It's setting display grid and like grid template columns repeat 1FR4 or something. Like it's like almost one-to-one line difference of abstraction. It's not as valuable as it would have been should we not have grid, you know? It does have shorthands though. And one of the best features I think about using styled styled systems is you don't have to worry about uh, like putting in variables for your sizes, for your colors. You can add all that to your theme. So instead of working with pixels or even RAM units, you can say uh, small or Mm -hmm. whatever label you want to give so-and-so size. Right. You've made an API for your system so that, and then hopefully it's not just you that, you know, four other developers that work with you, they're either going to pick small, medium, or large and not invent some pixel value, which can lead to inconsistency in your app or something. I kind of like that. I always think of these things as bumper bowling for design that you can't, you can't screw it up. There's only three valid values. So pick one of these, you know, I think that's whether people know it or not, that's what they like about Tailwind or some or a utility library is that there's only four valid values or something, or we set up our system to have our brand colors be these particular properties, and please pick just from them. Like you're, you're the whole world isn't open to you on purpose, and that leads to and then the, I think they look at their output of their website and be like, look at how consistent it is, look at how nice it looks, which is they're reacting to how consistent it is and how the, the smart defaults they set up because they set up some bumper bowling so they can get strikes most of the time, you know. That explains the explosive popularity of Tailwind. It seems like in the last year, you know, everyone's talking about it. Uh, I, I tried to use it in some side projects. I thought it was great. And then I looked at the markup and I'm like, oh, this class, this element has uh, 15 CSS uh, classes on it. <laughs> and right. my, my app takes uh, one extra minute to build. Mm. So you found some down, you found some downsides for it for your own project. Like everything in front end development, it, it requires a ton of setup to mm. get it working uh, in the right way. Like you can compile all your your classes down in like tree shaking, basically. Uh, right, right, right. I think that's kind of not optional, at least in my mind in Tailwind, that it ships this massive amount of CSS that can cover almost anything CSS can do, almost, I think, which is pretty impressive and cool. But that piece of CSS, they don't intend for you to ship to production. It's too much. They say, use what you use, then at the end, pull out everything you don't use. And that can be done programmatically to some degree. You know, there's still going to, I think there's going to be misfires. I think they'll be like, oh, but my ad network pulls in this div and this div has stuff on it that uses a tailwind class and how would this 
build system ever have known that? It can't see that. That came from some API or something. So there'll be edge cases you have to catch, but for the most part, it can be done intelligently. And then all of a sudden you're shipping probably way less CSS than I am. I'm not using Tailwind. I think that that's appealing to to the Tailwind crowd is that you can ship in the end less CSS and CSS is a render blocking resource on the web. And a lot of people are very performance focused on the web and that's cool. If you can ship a third less CSS, I think you're going to feel that. And, you know, it's a cool thing, cool thing to buy with just a tool at the cost of whatever else, all this setup and getting it wrong and maintaining it for the rest of your freaking life, you know? Yeah, I like, I like the idea of a utility CSS framework because it seems like from a rapid prototyping standpoint, you can just, you know, bang out a component very quickly and get something on the screen. I'm so curious about that one. I feel like the Tailwind newts, they, they, the Tailwind nerds, I'll call it, are into the idea of how fast it can be. They're like, it's so fast. I just, I just bang stuff out, like you said. But I'm like, why is it any faster? I like, don't get it. I'm like, I don't feel slow putting a class on something and styling the class. That doesn't, like, the speed thing doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't land for me, but it does for so many people. So it leaves me in this curious state. Well, it's because you have to set up, you know, your theme, you have to set up and like, Speaking from other, coming from other frameworks, uh, I've had a similar experience in other uh, UI libraries. One of them, Chakra UI, which is currently my favorite component library. They, they kind of go with the styled system uh, kind of approach. It's kind of like bringing some ideas, you could say, uh, from both the CSS yeah. and JS and the, the utility first uh, approach. It's because whenever you uh, have like a slight variation on something that's already built in, that's a pain point. And if you can avoid that, however way, sure. you're just so much faster. Like you can see how in the CSS, state of CSS survey, I like looking at surveys, I always pull data from them. Um, it really seems like we're splitting into like three camps. Like you have the CSS module people who use post-CSS, you have the tailwind nerds as you call them. Uh, <laughs> and then you have the CSS and JS people uh, mm. which seems to be coalescing still around styled components. There's no vanilla CSS people aren't, aren't, aren't represented at all in the survey. That's sad to me a little bit. Not that I have many projects where I just like write raw CSS, but I do have some, you know, and it feels like that's also a perfectly valid approach to writing CSS is to write CSS, you know? <laughs> True. I guess it wasn't in the survey for whatever reason. Yeah. I guess you could consider, you would consider that in, the post CSS camp because the post CSS you are writing like some standard ish version of CSS like Babel was five years ago. <laughs> right, right, right. Especially if you yeah, if you're not if you're not piling on because post I always found post CSS fascinating because it doesn't mean anything by itself. If you say we use post CSS to be like that's a parser, so that doesn't mean anything. Um, but it generally has meaning. It probably means you're running auto prefixer with it because that's the root of that. So, okay, cool. You know, these days I think it's starting to mean more and more that you're you're running post CSS preset env or whatever. That seems to be the, the big package that is spiritually aligned with Babel. It's like this stuff is probably coming to CSS, so we're going to give it to you now if we can. I would guess that CSS is a little harder to polyfill than JavaScript is. I don't know if that's a fair statement, but there's some things that you just can't, 
you just can't do it. Like custom properties is a good example. Like that's not a polyfillable thing really. Like your browser either supports it or it doesn't. You can have variables like SAS does. You can polyfill that, but you can't polyfill like the dynamic nature of a custom property really. So they have an interesting way of handling it, I think, where they they just leave it in there. They leave the custom property in the code, but then they put like a static fallback to it so that it's just not broken. Whatever. I think it's just kind of clever. But I, I don't know. I think that's cool. And I, get, I take your meaning is that you're just writing regular CSS, but you're running it through a thing that, you know, does some clever stuff with it to be to be helpful but it's not as dramatic as a change as style components is or something where you're literally writing like an object for your styles that's just like super different yeah and many people also have you know all of the above (laughs) in their project Uh, especially with tailwind people there's like some packages that i've seen that like mix tailwind with css and js for instance really Mm -hmm. why not i guess make everything more complicated it's the the fun way Anyway, uh, switching gears a little bit, I also wanted to talk about something that I thought was like absolutely crazy web containers, if you saw it. You are the uh, founder of CodePen, uh, something that I've used for literally ever. And I'm really a big fan of, you know, rapid prototyping on, you know, on the browser. I guess I uh, want to hear your thoughts on like uh, where that's going and like, uh, do you think running Node in the browser is an insane idea, or? Oh, you mean this—the thing that StackBlitz put out the other day with the how they can basically run Next in in the browser? Dude, that's just extremely cool. You know, like that. It sounds like they worked for eighteen months on it or something to get it even going with the help of Google and stuff. I don't know any. I don't know anything behind the scenes at all, but. Their demo's cool, and they're 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 they looks like they have a really beautiful new homepage now. You can click that like Next.js button, and it just shoo boop spins up a Next app, rock and roll in the browser. I mean, technologically, is it cool that Next.js runs in the browser? Yeah, t- truly is. But I also like I'm like kind of don't care. I'm like is what what's compelling to me is the rapid prototyping in the browser and the the fact that it runs in the browser is neat because I could lose internet connectivity and theoretically it still works. That's pretty rad. But yeah, I mean that's it's just it's pretty it's pretty damn cool. I think Wasm is behind it, you know, like the WebAssembly thing underneath the hood, which is cool. You know, I was just talking with somebody about a SQL Lite, you know, that lib for storing data can be built in Wasm and then shipped to the browser. So you can literally like run MySQL in the browser. Wow. You know, that's pretty rad. Run your whole app offline in that way. That's the kind of doors that are opened by that tech. So I guess we have Mozilla to thank for that. Good job. Pretty rad. I don't, it's like above my pay grade a little bit, but you know, interested for sure. I I think another part uh, that I'm kind of excited for is like, does this make it easier for people to learn if they can like, you know, spin up a Next.js app in like 10 seconds? Not just like the barrier to entry, but like barrier to even being exposed to these technologies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the answer is yes. Yes, totally. I mean, that's I've kind of banked my career on it, so I hope so, you know, that like can can this be better? Can people learn tech better and faster if there's less crap in the way? And some of that is like behind the scenes, like the fact that you go and you click this link and you spin up a next site and it's already working. 
it's not just the speed. It's not just that it's offline. It's not just that it's impressive, period. It's that it's already configured correctly. You're not going to follow a tutorial and type that crap into your command line and have it be like, oh, I'm sorry, your global version of Node is wrong. And then read a tutorial and they're going to be like, you should install NVM because then you can have the right version of Node on this project, but not screw up this other project. And then your NVM install fails. And then actually you missed a comma in your package.json when you're adding a dependency and it screwed it up. Like that, there's a lot that can go wrong with that. And the fact that you've clicked a button and it's already right and working and that if something goes wrong, you have the opportunity to tell them what they did wrong. There's more to that than, than just the fact that it works. You know, there's more to like get right in the abstracting away the painful parts of this. And I know, cause it, like you can pretty much ask any developer and they're like, what's something you don't like about your job? And so many of them will say like config stuff and like troubleshooting stuff where it's not clear how to even start troubleshooting yet. You know, they hate that. Nobody likes that. Speaking about barriers, uh, uh, switching gears a little bit. Did you hear that MDN is going to offer a, a paid content service? <laughs> I saw this is the thing that launched today. So, yeah. you're, so you're you're on top of stuff. You were saying, you know, that we have uh, Mozilla to thank for some things, and perhaps maybe not to thank for other things. I think that's what that's what I'm wondering about. Like, as you have been responsible for creating, or in some cases facilitating content, which is different, obviously, than MDN. I don't know. Based on the reactions I see on Twitter, it's maybe not that popular. This MDN plus thing. Yeah. It's a hundred bucks. Really? A year. It's a hundred bucks a year. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, it depends on what my know. impression is that they're so not ready for us to be talking about it on this podcast. They were supposed to launch it to 10% of users, but then everybody got the link and is sharing it anyway. As mm. far as I know, they have like one writer that's doing some pilot content for it. And, oh, that poor person. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know that to be sure. So don't quote me on that, but, yeah. but that it's just a trial to see if, to see if they should invest more in it later. Mm. I'm sure you at LogRocket are cheering for their demise as you make content for a living too. Not really. We're all friends here, but you know, like whatever they make content, you make content. It's kind of a thing. Uh, there's also, there's a lot that complicates this to the, that I don't haven't figured out. You know, I'm, sh I'm sure maybe, maybe there's a, surely there will be upcoming messaging that explains this kind of stuff, but they had that big round of layoffs, involved a lot of MDN people, or at least some, but they've been still working on MDN pretty good. All of MDN is on GitHub now, which I think is a notable improvement to their process. Actually, I think they laid off everyone, everyone who was working at MDN. I don't know that that's fully true because there's definitely like content managers and stuff that still exist that still talked about MDN. I mean, th that transition to GitHub was after those layoffs, so it can't entirely be true. Maybe it was all con like literal writers that got laid off, but there's other people and they still have people on contract. I know personally people still on contract producing content for MDN. So the story is complicated, whatever it is. And, and how do you know? You just get little bits and pieces from people you know. It's not like they are super public about stuff like that. But then there was this thing, what was it called? Open web docs or something was like a foundation that was formed. And the idea was it's, it's super funded. It has millions of dollars or whatever from companies. And the idea was to kind of like be a, a, 
protectorate almost of MDN and contribute to it and like make sure it keeps going or something. I don't remember all the details, but it was something like that. So it seems like a funky timing to say that some third party thing has to swoop in to protect this. And then we're going to monetize the content that's being given to us from that foundation. The messaging of that is going to be tricky, I think, you know. But this thing is like, I don't know, you save bookmarks and you export stuff as PDFs and stuff. Some of the, what they're promising here is pretty lightweight. I, I like MDN as like an impartial, you know, third-party resource. I, I don't like the idea that it's going to turn into a commercial thing. I don't know. It's like the UN turning into a business or something. Yeah, but I mean, it's whatever. It's a business. It costs money to maintain all these docs. I should know, you know, I have a bunch of docs myself. It takes time and money and people to do these kind of things. The answer then is what's the best way to extract money from this valuable resource you have there's not that many different ways you could start a logging company where you <laughs> add javascript to your page and it monitors it and then try to sell yeah you could do that yeah. or you know you could slather ads all over it that's what i do works out okay or you could try to sell pro plans to it directly to it. So they're trying one. There's not that many plays, you know. There's another play where they could have paid educational content that's like a little bit more in depth. They could be like t-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. Yeah, <laughs> sell t-shirts. That's you're gonna pay for half an employee. I guarantee you. That's well, be great. The other half is stickers, and you'll be good. Yeah. Um, but like yeah. you could be like a treehouse or whatever. You could you could double down on on real deep education. They also only touch core web tech, as you'll notice. There's like Houdini stuff and there's raw JavaScript API stuff, but there's not like React help. There's you know, there's there's a lot of things that you can teach developers as part of docs that are this trusted that go a little deeper than what they already have, you know. Not that this is an MDN help session. I don't know what they should do. They should just give it to me is what they should do. I'll take care of it. We could split it up. Yeah. You I'll take right the front it. half. I'll right. take the back half. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, it's not a terrible idea. If you're listening, uh, MDN, we're interested. Okay. So like the last thing that, I, I, that I'm interested in is um, I wanted to run this by you and then kind of get your thoughts. Um, a few months ago, we on the Log Rocket blog, I was wondering really if our audience would uh, answer questions, open-ended questions. So I just put like a really small uh, three-question poll in like the bottom left-hand corner that was uh, asking open-ended questions about kind of the future of front-end or just really kind of how are you feeling about it. And one of them was, what are you most frustrated by in front-end? And we got like thousands of completes and far and away, the biggest pattern was um, there are so many things to learn. There are so many things for me to keep up with. And I have no idea what, how to do it or even like how to prioritize that. Um, I'm wondering if that's something that, that you hear a lot too. Um, and then if you do, how, well, what do you say? Like, how, what's the, is there a roadmap? Is there like a framework to put this into? I mean, I, I've seen roadmaps. Have you seen that those go around once in a while yeah. that are this little cheesy boxes tied to other boxes that say yeah. this is the this is the stuff you should learn? Some of them are even kind of well done, I think. They kind of like feel right-ish, you know, to these days. But is anybody going to do that? Is anybody going to print that crap out with a red Sharpie and cross the crap out that they learn? No, yeah. absolutely not. The only way anybody ever learns anything is just doing it anyway. 
Like you, people don't listen to your advice. You can give advice till you're blue in the face. They don't care what you say. They're just going to do whatever they want anyway. And probably they're going to learn by getting a job or being forced to do it in some way because they joined some boot camp and that's the homework of the week or whatever. Or they're just particularly motivated to get something done because they have some stake in the game anyway. Like they really want to build this thing. So they're going to learn how to do it and build it. You know, and that can just be you getting dragged along. I think probably most people learn at work. I see that I did a whole conference talk on this one time that like that, like I'm falling behind kind of thing or or how do I choose what to learn next? And in fact, I have a podcast too, shop talk show is probably the most asked question on the whole show mm. over 10 years of people sending in questions. People are obsessed with the idea of being told what to, what to learn next, even though they're not going to listen to you anyway. Mm. The the it comes from different places is what's interesting it comes from like it could be that you're a boss already you probably already know a lot about web design stuff and you still feel behind and you still feel worried because let's say you have another project coming up how do you know how to intelligently make choices for that next project maybe you just don't even know what's cool anymore or like what's what you should be picking because of who, who knows what that uh, that can totally be a reason and for that that's an extra difficult one you know uh just because it's like your choices hinge upon stuff like hiring you know mm, like what yeah. if you what if you you know you're like i don't know google's behind angular right how can this not be the most popular one everybody likes google well you'd kind of probably be wrong like i don't hear I don't know. Like, at least in the circles I run, it's not as popular of a framework. There's not as many Angular devs out there. I don't think boot camps are kicking out Angular devs like they're kicking out React devs. So if you just, like, didn't know that and you're just like, oh, Google, that's Angular's Google's framework. I'm going to pick that one. You may have foot gunned a little bit there and that it'll be a little harder to hire for. I don't know that to be true, but that's a concern. You, know? you get some really... In my experience, very passionate Angular uh, devs when I'm like, well, we don't really cover Angular as much simply because it's not as popular. And they're like, it should be more popular, though. You should write more about it. I'm like, I don't I don't make the rules really. Well, I guess in this case, I Fine. do. But you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, listen to Kalen. He's talking about React right and left. Probably because you write React for your job, right? Yeah. Right. If you didn't, it's not like you're like writing about like if you used Angular at work, guess what? You'd probably write a little bit more about Angular. You might be one of those passionate Angular people if you felt per particularly productive at work. I used to be a passionate Angular person, but well, there you my go. heart belongs to React now. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. Like I don't, I mean, I know that um, when people write for us, I, I, they will pitch topics, you know? And I'm always like, well, it's clear to me what you're, what you use at work. Like what, it's clear to me what you're actively working on and fixing, you know? Um, right, right. So if I get like a slew of view topics, that's what it is almost all the time. Yeah. I'll, I, I've done view projects so I can work that, but it also depends on you, you have editors, you know, some, somebody there is in charge of making sure that what you publish is correct. You know, and at least it seems to me you all do a pretty good job. Not everybody does, by the way. Thank Jesus. you. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I won't even take an Angular article because I can't tech check it. I can't. I don't know anything about Angular. So to, to, if I did, it would just be a in, it would be a greedy grab at just like I don't know. It's tech content. I'll take it. I'll publish it. Ah, you know, like that's not fair. I could yeah. be publishing total garbage, and I it's not that I couldn't hire somebody to do it or something that I don't want to. You know, mm. like I'd rather just be able to know 
by looking at an article, whether it's basically right or not, you know, like I've been around long enough that I can do that for Vue and I can do that, you know, for React and some other things. But I like, like there's some frameworks. It's the same way for something like Ember, you know, it's cool. There's good people that work on the project. I can't tech check your Ember stuff. So unfortunately, there might be some self-fulfilling prophecy there where, we just don't write about it then. And not that we have a big say in the popularity of, but if you're not publishing Angular stuff and I'm not publishing Angular stuff, that's all the less, Yeah. not that we're the, you know, we're too small fry in a big world, but it does affect things overall, you know? For sure. As far as uh, fear of falling behind, my trick has always been side projects. Like before I was a React developer, I, you know, had a side project where I, you know, played around with React. And I've always learned new technologies like that. I don't think I've ever actually completed a tutorial (laughs) ever. I I always just jump in uh, with a goal in mind. Yeah, read the docs or whatever. That's why the docs are so important in how, like I would think of that on your content team too. That's probably the number one email I write back to people is like, why is your thing that you just pitched better than the docs? Yeah, because it's probably not, and it's you know, and it, but then you just have to take it a different way. Then like, do that's not like a no. That means like, please don't recreate the docs. Do hit it from some other more personal angle. Yeah. Counterpoint: uh, You do get some docs that are like way, way too verbose. Uh, looking at you, TypeScript. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to read, you know, 50 pages to figure out how to do you know X thing in in TypeScript. So I think. Yeah, a little mini blog post that says, here's how you make a generic type for your function or whatever. It can be useful alongside the docs. Yeah, well. Some might call that a blog spam, but I think there there is a, a real need there. I think maybe just a weakness of the TypeScript docs that they need, they need to break it up. I've never liked how they... That's funny. People call that blog spam. They do, but know. like... I've never heard that before. I mean, I get what the, the meaning is. It's quite literal. I mean, I think it means like, it's like casting a stone like you're... SEO, you're just a, you're greedy. You're just going for a page view over the docs because you think you're you know whatever. It's just a SEO garbage. Oftentimes we have to be like no no. I mean we say the same thing, which is like what the docs do this. Occasionally um, there'll be like a TLDR for a doc that like Caitlin's saying is a little bit too verbose. But there are also occasions where I don't know if you ever notice with your stuff like we will outrank the docs uh, and then I go, well, that's, you know, as the director of content at LogRocket, that's cool. As an internet user, I don't really love that, <laughs> you know? And then usually LogRocket, or not LogRocket, Google realizes it a couple weeks later and it's like, we're gonna put the React docs back on top. Yeah, you, you also gotta be careful of um, how you're, I mean, you're a director of content, so you know probably know more than I do about this stuff, but if you're logged into Google and you're doing those searches. Oh, sure that you go to LogRocket all the time. So Google might be helping you out and saying, I'm putting that search result higher than me who goes there just slightly less than you do, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess if you're a project, uh, an open source project leader and and your docs are outranked by a blog post, I think maybe that's an indication of something then. (laughs) Maybe maybe switch to incognito when you're doing your search. Yeah, or, you know, I'm not saying you should, people need to... bow down but you could be a little thankful too it's, it sounds like your seo is not that that you yes you got outranked but your seo is so low that there's no way i'm not helping you <laughs> like 
that was a the fact as long as you're linking to them properly that would be the jerk move is to not even have a link in your document to them oh yeah you know what are you the new york times jesus you know Mm. (laughs) not yet okay well cool i think we uh should probably wrap up this is usually the portion of the of the show uh where we ask you what you want to plug who you'd like to talk about where people should go doesn't have to be you what do you got anything <laughs> no, we were doing plugs, but I, but, but it is always mandatory when I have a podcast that the other podcast audience knows that it's mandatory to go pro on CodePen as well. So after you've picked up your LogRocket subscription, you have to immediately go over to CodePen and do, do this. And your MDN Plus. Like everyone yeah. just sign up for the things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. That's it. Thanks a lot for coming on with me and Kalen. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. Hi, thanks for listening. Um, Please remember to like, subscribe, uh, email me if you want, even though none of you do. Go to logrocket.com and and try it out. It's free to try. Then it costs money, but yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks.